Attention HR professionals. Are you tired of dealing with poor performance from your managers? Are you sick of having managers run to you for every single little problem? Would you like to build the confidence and competence of your management team? If so, then contact Boss Builders. At Boss Builders, we specialize in building up the skills and confidence of your organization's managers. We do this through our popular Driving Results on-site training programs, our signature program, the Video-Driven Boss Builder Academy, and we even license our course materials so you and your internal training staff can get those managers confident and competent. For more information on how we can help you improve the performance of your organization's managers, contact us today at www.thebossbuilders.com or at 931-221-2988. Well, hello and welcome to this episode of the Boss Builder Podcast, the podcast for those of you who are new to supervision, those of you who are in the role and struggling, and even some of those of you who are thinking about one day making the important transition to management. If you're the boss, you probably realize that not every employee is going to be a superstar. Some employees are just going to be average. They'll just come to work, do their job, nothing remarkable, go home. And then there's the select few who make it their mission to cause trouble. These are what we refer to as disruptive employees. And so what we're going to look at on today's episode is how to deal with disruptive employee behaviors. Our guest is Dr. David Clayman. David is a clinical medical and forensic psychologist. He deals with disruptive employee behaviors. He gets people referred to him and he takes care of them. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna ask him some questions about how do we handle disruptive behavior. David is a great guy, I love him, he is funny. He's kinda like, let's see, Dr. Phil, Gordon Ramsay, and Mr. Rogers all rolled up into one. He's going to take you through some scientific stuff that may be a little bit hard to grasp, so you may rewind it a few times, but you will get some actionable strategies and realize that you are not alone when it comes to dealing with disruptive employee behaviors. So with no further delay, let's meet our special guest, Dr. David Clayman. David Clayman, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Mac. How are you doing? Hey, I'm really good. David, I've known you for a couple of years now, and I am always really, really interested when I hear about the kinds of things that you do. You are a clinical, medical, and forensic psychologist, and the topic we're going to be looking at today is how to deal with disruptive employee behaviors. And uh, before we get to those questions I have for you, um, please take a moment, tell us about your background, tell us about what the actual field of being a clinical, medical, and forensic psychologist is, and then we'll dive into these questions. Well, I, I think it's really easy. I, I'm a doctoral trained clinical psychologist, uh, been doing this for almost 50 years, which freaks me out a little bit. Uh, the medical psychology training is in addition to your traditional diagnostic and treatment training, including assessments as a clinical psychologist, I spent a good deal of my career specially trained to deal with the psychological aspects of physical disease. How about that for a mouthful? And which is now called integrated healthcare. And from that, I evolved into doing forensic work, which is basically any application of psychology, and in my case, clinical psychology, 
to the legal settings, which includes criminal and civil litigation. And part of the civil litigation world is a specialized area called fitness for duty, return to work, and uh, functional capacity evaluations, which are the kinds of things that employers generally contact me about. So I guess now let's let's put yourself in sort of the chain of, of I guess, events. So let's say that a manager has a disruptive employee. So does this then go to HR? Does HR then refer them to you? How do you normally get called into these things? Well, I think companies have become really educated over the years. Uh, I, I think this is really wonderful. Starting out with the EAP movement and dealing with substance abuse, presaging what we have now. And uh, now EAPs are real common in bigger companies where you can have employees go for little or no cost in secrecy to talk about work-related or personal-related issues that are impacting work-related behaviors in a bad manner, um, bad team problems, um, poor productivity, absenteeism, those kind of things. And that's been going on forever and ever. And generally what happens, they say that an EAP is not a crutch or a club, that you can't lean on it as an excuse, nor will we use an EAP to get rid of you. It's to try to in a very short term, resolve problems, keep people at work if you possibly can, and then get them on their way back to being healthy. That's the standard. And, and HR has done a lot. The work you do as a coach and others that we know, like Margie Bush, um, all of you work to try to maintain a healthy work environment. As in any bushel basket of fruit, Sometimes one of the pieces of fruit gets a little bit sour and does not respond to the policies and procedures, which I cannot emphasize more than anything on this. First of all, I'm not a lawyer. But the big thing, Mac, is every company has to have, has to have policies and procedures, not only on the standard stuff, but how to deal with crises. It's just absolutely critical. And if they don't, then they're in trouble because they're not going to apply these things in a regular manner. My world is the dysfunction world. I know your world is the growth and team building world. Mine is the world in which one grain of sand, a bad ball bearing, or a huge piece stops the machine, often the worker or the company, and impacts things adversely. And people will contact us on a regular basis to determine whether someone is, is fit to safely and effectively perform essential job functions. How's that for a, another mouthful? And that's our job. <laughs> it sounds like, that sounds like lawyer speak right there, essential oh, job functions. I actually live in the lawyer's world. And so when people have someone with whom they've done all of the regular work, they've brought them in, they've started progressive discipline, they've asked them what's the matter. And, and these are the kinds of pay, people that sometimes have pretty significant problems you get to a point you're saying, well, is this person really able to work or is this something interfering with them? Uh, and that's when you do um, a fitness for duty evaluation. Uh, there are very specific guidelines. And I think for me, I did a workshop about two years ago and I almost fell out of my chair when I really got into the law behind it. And I've been doing this stuff for 35 years. OSHA, believe it or not, a, a dysfunctional employee could be a safety risk to your company. And so you are duty bound to take care of implementing some kind of intervention to assure that that dysfunctional employee 
may not cause harm to the, the company or fellow workers. So I, I was almost stunned to see that that was part of it. And then there's FEMLA, um, Title IX, Title 19, everything, everything you can think of with the initials that have some impact on doing a fitness for duty evaluation. So you, you told me you said dysfunctional employee, and then we talked about like a, a little piece of dirt or something in the machine. And so is there a difference between the dysfunctional employee and their disruptive behaviors, or are they one and the same? Well, the, the, this is why people will call us. Great question. There are tons of dysfunctional behaviors that people can manifest in a work-related setting. And the question is, what is the basis of that? And I often get calls from employers and HR people and legal counsel for companies saying, hey, we have this employee who's doing this. We don't have any idea why, and we'd like to know. And it's not traditionally that as a fitness for duty evaluation in the idea that somebody's done something bad. Many times people call us to determine whether there's something going on that can be remediated. And I think that's really important. People get freaked out. Say, oh, I got to go to see a shrink to do an evaluation. Well, yes. But we're here to objectively, unbiasedly assess someone's functional ability. Is there a mental or physical condition? In our case, it's mental condition that is either short or medium term causing problems. If there is, because of the uh, American Disabilities Act, we are duty bound to work with the employer to see if we can do accommodation. If there isn't, do they go on short-term disability? Do we help them get to the proper treater? And we can, I can go on and on with the kinds of things that we can do, but we, we take steps to get them there. And, and we, we, we look to determine whether is it um, people not getting along with each other, for instance. Is it a bad culture fit? We, we, we do this before we see them. Um, some people may have worked really, really, really well for a certain boss, and they a new boss comes in, and they go from being a high performer to a low performer. Uh, a lot of times we find it's just the person doing the assessment of the person's work-related abilities, but we talk about that. Um, we talk about them being someone who's in a bad job match. Can they do the job they're assigned? Are they being asked in this rapidly changing culture to do other kinds of things? Um, and other other kinds of things, money issues, um, and then ultimately, so that we can assure a safe, harmonious, and effective work environment, are there maybe psychological issues, marital disturbance, depression, anxiety, and other kinds of things that may impact And That's our job to identify them and then determine whether somebody is capable of doing their work and also making a prediction on whether if we do an intervention, they go on leave, whatever, can they come back to work ultimately? And then we'll we'll do a return to work evaluation as well. That's a lot of words. I'm sorry, but that's a... That's no, 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 no. It's, it's, that's fine. I, but I want to, what I want everybody to understand, this is a pretty complicated thing. Because I mean, so let's think about this. If I am a boss and I got an employee and let's say this employee just shows up every day and has really bad body odor. I mean, and it becomes an issue. Is this something that I would call Dr. David Clayman to help us think through? Uh, not for body odor. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, I mean, this is on the, I'm going from the, the spectrum here. So then we have a person who is just mean to people. They're, they're not really friendly. 
they their uh, nonverbal communication. I, I just learned this. this is a new one for you too, David. It's called RBF. You ever hear that before? I'm not sure. No, it's it's short for resting bitch face. Oh. It's the person that has the visible attitude. And I learned this from my group at Plato's Closet. That's you know, my supervisors are in their teens there. Right. So so somebody that has RBF is that when I call because now I'm getting some nonverbal signals that this person's not happy. Is that the time I would call you? You know, that's I think you've kind of given me a way to make it really simple for people. If that face mm-hmm. is a new thing. And it's causing disruption in the workforce where there wasn't any before. If they're not, if you come by their desk and you ask them to come in and talk to you, or come by their cubicle, because my wife's a commercial interior designer, I have to say that. Um, if you come by and this person's never been this way, and now they're 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 being grumpy faced. How's that for a grown up term? Um, <laughs> when you come by, they don't want to do the job or they're doing it sloppily and they are a change off their usual baseline, their usual behavior. That's one of your first key indicators that there might be something going wrong for a number of different reasons. But that's a really good, that idea of, of the, the, the bitch face kind of thing is very important. If they've not been that way, if they've always been kind of friendly, um, if they've always been accommodating, if they've been one of your strengths in being a positive influence on the work team, and they start to change, that change off baseline in a negative way should always be considered a warning sign that somebody has something going on. I will say it's good for you and me and everybody that most of these things resolve themselves on their own after a couple days. But if you've got somebody that is now sustaining a new negative behavior, angry, sloppy, not performing up to quality standards, uh, that's the time to um, start thinking about something else. And, you, and, and that's, that's where you begin to move toward where, where I work. The other part is if you've got people doing dysfunctional, illegal behaviors under our laws for harassment and other kinds of things, people get sent to me for that to be assessed and then to have an intervention program designed. Okay, so it sounds like that the manager's is the first line of defense is to be paying attention to these things and addressing them. Uh, of course, I would say in consultation with their HR support. And because a lot of these things, RBF, I mean, we can clarify it. We, we teach different scripts, you know, Hey David, when you give me RBF, I feel like there's something wrong, you know, help me understand what's going on here. But what I want people to realize is that they've got to start handling these things. After all, we wouldn't just want a direct line from I have RBF today to we get to sit in front of Dr. Clayman tomorrow. That's, I think, jumping through a lot of hoops we don't need to do. So it's, I guess, is awareness as the boss important? As For the bosses, it's important because most, most employees put on different faces for the boss than they do for everybody else. And so I think for the boss, it's to not feel like you're going behind the back of someone, but to check out your perceptions, make sure that it's not just directed to use the boss for some distortion or unknown reason, and to be be deliberate and understanding about this kind of stuff. Go in and, and, and check with your HR professional and, and make sure that that person's, what if the HR professional, you, you don't know this is the boss, has uh, access to um, attendance records or at the last employee meeting, this person was being a grump or being disruptive or being angry. 
got passed over for promotion, um, been asked to take on initial job responsibilities, and has responded in a negative manner. Those are things you all generally handle on your own. It's when there's a suspicion that something's um, happening that, that could harm the company, harm coworkers, and, and cause significant kinds of problems to the work environment as well as to the production line or to the warehouse, any of these places. We, we, do, we do school bus drivers, teachers, lawyers, physicians, um, you name it, and I've probably done an evaluation on that job-based population, all with different kinds of things. Guess what I see physicians for? This will be fun for me to ask you a question. Oh, Lord. Uh, maybe just being a holy terror in the operating room, throwing instruments or things like that? Right on. Perfect. Is that right? Okay. Well, I'm just telling you what I experienced when I was in the military working in healthcare. So uh, that frightens me that it's still going on outside. <laughs> oh, not, not with electronic, electronic medical records. Every Physicians hate electronic medical records. And so they don't do their charting right, and you try to tell them that they have to. This is this parallels, I can segue into lawyers not keeping track of their time appropriately so they can be billed. This goes into mm -hmm. teachers taking time off when they, they should be there. So you have all of these kinds of behaviors that you can begin to see how they can be problematic and cause, very often it's because they could cause a legal problem if not dealt with. A, a boss who in 2019 is still, after several warnings, hasn't maybe entered the progressive discipline system yet, but is making inappropriate statements, standing too close, um, not understanding why someone might file a, a grievance and then inadvertently acts in a retaliatory manner. And I'm using all those words because any HR professional or boss that hears those should know that those are all beginning grounds for legal action taken by an individual who is a disgruntled employee. And so you begin to see all of these things. We had a school bus driver that was on the side of the road asleep seven minutes after the person dropped their last student off. They did a talk screen on her and, of course, um, came back positive. Mm -hmm. um, that was a, that was a, a good call. We, and, and this woman came in very angry that she was having to be um, evaluated and was stunned when we said, look, you know, this stuff happens. What we need to see is you being responsible and accountable, doing the right thing, getting yourself into treatment, and making sure this doesn't happen again. And that's that's the positive flow of a fitness for duty evaluation. Identify the problem, work with the person to understand it, communicate with the employer and the HR people and the legal counsel for the company, and then see what we can do before I do after that to get them back on the job. Um, it's too it's too costly to replace good workers. And it's too costly to keep bad workers. So those are the kinds of things that, that we try to do to get people ready to do a fitness for duty. And now let's take a break for a quick word from our sponsor. What do you do when you have an employee who is highly skilled and highly motivated, but is still not successful? Some of these symptoms might be a person who's abrasive to others. Maybe they're not able to effectively communicate to others. Sometimes they say inappropriate things in meetings or in a one-on-one -on -one session. You observe them being culturally insensitive or highly opinionated. Or maybe they just have a few rough edges that need to be removed in order to be successful. In these cases, training is not your best option. At Boss Builders, we recommend coaching. 
Our strategic partner, Wisdom Tree Coaching, provides one-on-one or group coaching to resolve focus factor problems. The ICF certified coaches at Wisdom Tree Coaching use behavioral assessments and 360 surveys to define the root issue of the problem and then co-create solutions with the client. Wisdom Tree Coaching also facilitates a popular practical course entitled Coaching as a Discipline for Managers. Your managers will get helpful and useful skills to provide a coaching approach with their direct reports to mitigate and eliminate focus issues. Remember, training fixes skill problems. The best way to fix a behavior problem is through coaching. Contact the professionals at Wisdom Tree Coaching at 304-549-4630 or you can find them online at wisdomtreecoaching.com. And now back to the show. So you're, in your experience, David, do you find that when we get somebody, let's take the example of the bus driver. I mean, do people come back from that? Do, or, I mean, do, they, do you get physicians that say, you know, I realize I've been really bad. I'm not going to do it anymore. Is there, a, is there a general number you see? Is it like most of them or some of them, half of them? I'm just curious. I will tell you, people don't respond well to criticism. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm smiling. I wish you could see the smile on my face because depending upon how long they've been on the job, what their underlying personality is, how many other times they've been called on the carpet, how much they tend to externalize blame, how much they hate to be seen as a cause of trouble rather than the recipient, the victim stance. I mean, I know you all probably lecture to HR about uh, employees that present themselves as victims. Oh, yeah. Uh, Victim, victim stance, yeah. So, so part of, and there's a, there's, a, there's a really difficult place because I represent usually the company doing its best to protect the company, the other workers, if it's a, if it's a retail or, or public, the, the public, and the worker. The worker has an enormous amount of protective rights. And, you know, we can, we, I don't want to go over all of the laws, but somebody who does fitness for duty evaluations really has to know the law and not just be a kind-hearted clinician who's doing something nice. Part of my job is to be as dispassionate as I can, to not be seen as an instrument of um, the company to either to get rid of a person, but to provide the company with good functional information. And this is, we'll get back to functional, I hope, before we, we sign off, about the person in a way that allows a good administrative legal decision to be made about a person, as well as a good rehabilitative decision made if this person is um, in a place where they, can, where they can be rehabilitated. There are people that can't, people with um, dementia, um, other kinds of things. So we can go into a couple examples of things that we do that have been pretty um, interesting for me recently, where, where a fitness for duty evaluation has been a major piece of um, business for a company. Yeah, I mean, if you can talk about those, I'm I'm sure my audience is interested. I am too. Well, I think this is a, an, an interesting. For me, it's an interesting issue of, of a fifty-something-year-old employee who was part of a finance department responsible for about fifty-five million dollars worth of money in a medium-sized company. This person had been a long-term employee. As a matter of fact, their job had always been um, the center of their lives uh, through about three marriages. And suddenly, there were some mistakes being made, and the person was called in, and the first, the first sign was the person blamed 
um, their computer for um, being the problem because the spreadsheet wasn't working right. I mean, they actually said that. Um, okay. And we got the person in, very bright, very capable, at least on the surface. And what we were evaluating is we found we had early onset dementia. Uh, you can imagine having a 54-year-old person coming in and being told that while you have no defined medical problems at this point, healthy as a horse, by the way, there's something not right with your brain because we do neuropsych testing as well. And we have a thing called executive functions, the higher level functioning of the brain, problem solving, conceptual thinking, um, dealing with complex issues. And all of the... Um, variables that we tested that had to do with numerical reasoning, um, accuracy, were all terrible. They were terrible, which prompted us after we did our screening to call the employer and say, hey, we think we got a problem here. We worked with a neurologist to make sure we then not only had the appropriate diagnosis, but we, affect, we, we, we evaluated the functional deficits the things that I mentioned, accuracy, numerical reasoning, all that kind of stuff, and made sure that we were making the right decision that this person really was disabled, not just dysfunctional. They were now going into the category that they were disabled, they were dysfunctional and because they, they weren't able to perform, and that person was put on disability at 57 years old. And we had to work with HR and the legal department uh, to help them present the case to this person to the extended family, to the kids, and make it so that it wasn't going to be catastrophic. It, it was catastrophic in some senses, but it, we did it as humanely, as compassionately as possible, saved the agency an enormous amount of money from, from malfeasance and other things, and prevented this person from wandering around in a parking garage lost because they couldn't find, this person couldn't find the car, um, saying things that they didn't remember doing, coming in disheveled, um, embarrassingly so, um, failing to put underwear on one day, for instance. Um, and it was, it was tragic to see that. Now, that's a bad one, but a good one. Um, we had an individual who started having multiple physical problems and could not work. And the boss called us, and we brought the person in. And they have been. They had now seen seven physicians for these physical complaint for these physical complaints. Seven, count them. And the last one that I couldn't understand after they saw a cardiologist, a gastroenterologist, so a stomach doc, a heart doc. Um, I can't remember a neurologist. They they were they saw a ENT for ear, nose, and throat guy. I'm thinking, what are they looking for? Because this person couldn't work. They were having a terrible time. But lo and behold, do you know that the seven physicians had never talked to each other? I know that probably be a surprise if you hear that too. Uh, yeah, that's actually no surprise whatsoever. <laughs> they had never talked, and they were getting ready to send this person to a specialty hospital in a huge city because they couldn't figure out the medical diagnosis for this person. I was appalled. A medical psychologist thus said me, hmm, maybe what we have here is an undiagnosed somatoform disorder with somebody focusing on physical complaints because something might be going on. I actually did something unusual. I got on the phone and talked to six out of the seven providers personally, um, three of them shocked. And what I said to each of them was, have you found anything from your perspective? None of them had, but every one of them thought they should have. 
I said, would you, based from where you are, would you have any problems with this person returning to work if we find out what's going on? I said, well, that's why I have referred him to so-and-so. Well, they finally got him to me. And much to my surprise, and this was wonderful, this guy was just amazingly wonderful. I said, let's walk through this. And I walked through, and it turns out, undiscovered, there were a whole bunch of stressors going on in his life. Kids going off to college, wife having been diagnosed with, a, with multiple sclerosis, approaching the, um, the, the age that his father was when he had his first stroke. This is a guy that didn't talk about his, his emotions. We were able to identify it, get him to see a good, a well-trained medical psychologist, healthcare psychologist, um, and he was back to work in six weeks. Wow. And they've been off for six months, by the way. And it was wonderful. I saw him at a meeting a couple months ago and uh, came up and almost gave me a hug. And wow. so, so you get the two ends. Um, soldiers coming back. I'll give you one more war story, literally a war story. Soldier comes back after three tours, um, becomes a cop, had been an MP, then, then was out, assigned out to frontline duty, had been a spotter for... Um, his rifle team and uh, the rifle team had been pinned down and it was his job to find out who, well, they found the spotter standing in a doorway and he had a video taken by one of the news channels of the spotter of what was going on. And he said, watch this. And um, a couple seconds later, the spotter wasn't there anymore because they had shot him. They'd blown him up. And he was not functioning well as a cop and couldn't understand why. And he smiled at me and said, now that's a good shot. Now that doesn't, I'm not sure a lot of people would understand this, right. but what he was looking at, he was like, all I want to do is go back there so I can have that. I became a cop so I could have adrenaline. Wow. And yeah. And so my job was to say no. And, and so we got people with Parkinson's we've, we've got, just a, a slew of things. Lawyer, we had a, we had lawyers that that have been inappropriate with clients. It goes on and on. So any kind of foible in human behavior, when that when there's a psychological component or a suspicion, depression, making people inaccurate with details. Um, I could I, I just as I do these and I see people coming in here really angry that they're here because a lot of times they don't want to hear it. But our job is to be objective, to be non-judgmental. And when someone leaves, to at least have them know that we've done a thorough, accurate job in doing a complete assessment, making the appropriate out referrals if we don't have the answers, and then working with the employer to satisfy all legal regulations as well as company policy and moral obligations if they're not all the same thing. Do you find that, because the three examples you gave me, well, two of the three is that Basically, a person has not been, they've been sort of misdiagnosed by the person who is initially making the complaint. So I'm thinking like, for example, if I'm the boss, I'm looking at this one behavior, I'm making a lot of assumptions about you, like the accountant. You're just lazy and stupid. How could you make these mistakes? And what you've discovered through your analysis is the guy's got a, a serious medical problem. Is that, does that happen frequently? Uh, often, Yes. It, I mean, and, and the issue for most mental, and this is important, most mental health professionals know that that stuff's going on, but the way in which an evaluation is done, they very often don't 
sit back and look at everything. And one of the one of the luxuries I've had, Mac, is being a forensic psychologist. Um, it changes the way in which you do assessments and the way you look at people because I get to see every single piece of paper in a person's history, work, medical, hmm. wherever it may be that that, that 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 is legally available to me. Education records. You know, somebody coming in and saying, oh, yes, I graduated from high school with a 375, and we get the education records, and they got those numbers mixed up. It was more like a 1.95, and they're faking their way through things. Um, or a surgeon who can't um, – we have a task called the trail-making test. And if you remember the old days with, cart with the – you go one, two, three, you know, you just do the dot-to-dot, -dot and it comes to be a picture. Right. Well, we have a thing called trail-making, which is basically a – a standardized thing using dot to dot. We found that a trauma surgeon, a, a, a high level surgeon, could not do dot to dots. And we have a complex task. It's called complex tasks. You do one A, two B, three C, and the person could not follow it. You cannot pick up a mm -hmm. pencil, and you have to do it in order, and you can't stop. And it's timed by accuracy and by time. And here's this guy who's a uh, had been. Um, working overseas, came back here, and we I still don't know what was the matter, but we, we could not clear him to go back to work as a trauma surgeon. Um, so we, we have these things where there's medical problems. I am not a physician, as, as I'm not a lawyer, mm -hmm. so I'm technically not allowed to diagnose a medical problem, but I'm able to say this array of behaviors is such that it would suggest that there's a problem somewhere. Um, cardiac, diabetes, uh, gastrointestinal, all of these things that have behavioral readouts. Um, I think there's one of the ads on television now is people that have um, chronic diarrhea or uh, whatever, um, colitis and those kind of things. Those are terribly difficult things to deal with. So sometimes it's the disease itself and sometimes it's the reaction to the disease physically. Um, people with diabetes, okay. higher low blood sugar does thing. You have to know that people with COPD, when you can't get oxygen in, it changes you and it will look like behavioral. They'll go to their MD and probably under report. The MDs don't do a great job in screening for, for psychological and, and it's psychological, not psychiatric psychopathology, but psychological basis for somebody's change in behavior or an association with a medical disease. So we have to do we have to have that knowledge to kind of put this big puzzle together and say, well, what are we going to do? And that's what. So you're, you're kind of like the guy, but, but in your respect, it sounds like you can refer them to medical or to legal based on your assessment, right? It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a circle for all of us. We can all either in order or cross refer and work. That's the, that's the important thing, Mac. It's gotta be a, it's gotta be a team effort. If you're doing a team building yeah. workshop with yeah. someone and somebody just doesn't seem to get it and they become agitated, you'd be part of that data collection package for us. We'd say, hey, you were doing training. Can you tell us what happened? The guy might have had a TIA in the middle of things. A, 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 it's a, a mini stroke. Um, his blood sugars may have been off because you had worked him more than three hours and he hadn't taken his blood sugars yet. We have to do that as much as he's irritable and angry because he has anxiety or he's depressed or you're scaring him. Um, these are all 
not linear. I, I, do you know, I, I think it's worth trying to educate people about one other little thing before we maybe we get into what we, we do to assess this. Um, sure. The, the medical model of illness is, is a very linear way of thinking. A patient comes in and presents a symptom, a set of symptoms. Those symptoms have in the past generally allowed us to move to a diagnosis. The diagnosis leads to a treatment procedure, antibiotics, anti-seizure meds, or whatever it may be, which leads to a prognostic statement. What do we think is going to happen with this person? And the most important part often in the, the, the psychology world for a lot of people is to come up with a diagnosis. Remember, symptom, and then the next big thing is diagnosis. And in the forensic world, diagnosis is necessary but not sufficient because we have to talk about how it impacts the way a person thinks feels or behaves or all three okay so we don't stop just with the label we have to talk about the function and the level of functioning i hope that made sense the way i explained it because it's it does well that and that and that makes sense why with the right team you could really help a person out do you do you find david in your experience that that the medical profession do they do they look at what you do and are they happy to have you on board? Do you ever get any pushback from them? Yes, to both. <laughs> it really depends. But I'm okay. I'm blessed. Okay. I mean, I really mean that. I I've been in in West Virginia since 1974. Um, I have worked with physicians all along. I trained them. I still see them. They're now the senior physicians at the hospital. Um, I have had wonderful interactions both them referring to me and me referring to them. Um, collegial, uh, I'm medical knowledgeable, but not medical brilliant. And so I'm able to talk to them. If I don't know what their big words mean, I ask them to explain it to me. But I'm also trained on how to understand the disease process. You're looking at treatment effects. We call them iatrogenic effects of treatment. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're taking too much oxygen, it can change you, or if you're taking too many of your meds, it can change you, and that's, an, that's a side effect of the treatment. Um, you learn to ask the right questions, and you gain their respect that way. I'm not a counselor who just sits and, in quotes, talks to people. My responsibility is to assess, provide guidance, and work with my referral sources to come up with solutions. But they have to be broad-based. Bio, get ready, I love this. Biopsychosocial. You take a look at their biology. Biopsychosocial. Yep. What they've been born with genetically, what their biology is like, the psychological, who they are, how they think, who they are as people, and the social, the world in which they live, and how it impacts. And there's an exchange of all of those. And so we have to take a look at if somebody has seizure disorder or develops seizures, how will that affect their work and their self-image? And how will that affect the people around them? We both are at an age, I suspect, I know that I am, I know you are, that we're having a lot of our friends having stents or bypass. How, how does that biological event affect right. them medically, which is outside of my aegis, you know, with, you know, threat for, for future stroke or whatever. But then the psychological perspective, I used to be a Superman and now I don't even think I'm on the team. And then how do I relate to the world, my family, my, my, my colleagues, my, my fellow employees? So you have to be able to understand the integration of all those and present them in pragmatic, non-psychobabble terms. Um, 
we don't use a lot of psychological terminology except if it's appropriate to there's no other word to use it uh and that's what we try to do so it's it's, it's fascinating work and we're dealing with people's lives in a way that that you don't want to hurt but you don't want to hold on to somebody that's going to hurt you and i think hr bosses are always put in that position and we're there to provide that kind of backup and support to make the right decision yeah it's a big responsibility well david i have time for one more question and and so i think what a lot of people fear because we see it on the news is what happens if an employee comes back to the workplace my son is a manager and in the back of my mind I'm always worried about this. Somebody that he's had to fire because he's had to do it, stalks him. Is there any way, and I don't even know if this falls into your area, but from your perspective, any way for us to be able to predict those things or any way that we could possibly prevent those kinds of things? Is there any pattern that you see to that? There's not a lot we can do. Unless the person manifests a, a disturbance that we can diagnose and we can make a an assessment, and this is generally across the boards, across all jurisdictions, unless we can definitively say that we believe that this person is an imminent threat, not just maybe a threat, we are pretty hamstrung. And a lot of times, if you make it, let's just say I said, you know, Mac Monroe is a, is, is a hothead and, and, and he's, he's gotten upset because nobody's come to his seminars in the past few weeks and we think he thinks it's the guy at the convention center that's blocking it. How much luck am I going to have going in and telling the police or, right. or even the person that owns the Civic Center and they come and they pick you up at your house and you're sitting there going, what the heck are you talking about? And you go to a mental hygiene hearing and the mental hygiene commissioner says, there's nothing the matter with this guy. We have a lot of trouble. Given all the shootings and all the retrospective stuff we have, if we had access to that data, HIPAA prevents us from having access to a lot of data, Mac, that we can't do anything about. And what we have to do is Mm -hmm. is take appropriate security precautions. Right. And my hope is, because this is something, I, I do this with cops a lot, um, with law enforcement, with, with, with courts as well, is to give us the ability to, in certain circumstances, get information, even though it's privileged and it's private, to make sure that we're not having somebody go out there. Um, that's, a, that's a real tough call. And individual rights generally, generally outweigh um, one clinician's worry about whether we're going to do it. I, I, I am called a lot to work with companies to make that judgment. I may not see the client, but I get the story from the company and I help coach them through to um, implement the appropriate sequence of events to maybe avoid a, a, a tragedy. Problem is, if we, we avoid it, we never know whether it really was going to happen. And after it's happened, we're running around looking at 2020 hindsight and not always being uh, accurate about what we would have done. The, 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 the shootings with kids who have autism or have access to guns and everything else, there should be a way we can predict that. But we see millions of people a year who make threats, both to themselves and others, and we can't always implement legal sanctions that would prevent it. So... I think bosses would be well advised to find a mental health professional with whom they can consult and use as a resource. And generally, doctor level psychologists who have experience in, in um, forensics and risk assessment, as well as um, industrial psych, 
would be the people I would choose and establish relationship and only use those that understand that timeliness is a factor that you just can't put them on hold and call them back in a week. You need somebody that's going to respond and help you immediately. This is a time sensitive area. It's not, oh yeah, we'll see you in three weeks or six months. Um, my people get in within 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. Well, one, one more thing. Is there any advice you can give the boss on a daily basis to, is there a methodology for them to just pay attention a different way? Is there something you might suggest? Because I mean, the average boss, the average boss doesn't check in and say, how you doing? Then you get a couple that'll say, hey, David, did you have a good night? Did you watch the game? Is there an approach that you'd recommend where a person could appear to be friendly, but not over friendly, nosy, but not nosy? Well, first of all, it has to be, it has to be sincere. And small businesses, I'd say businesses, and I'm talking micro businesses under 50, I think a boss can make him or herself visible and available. And um, uh, what was I? I'm blocking on the person that, uh, that used to have the checklist of things you're supposed to know about a person when you get to know them. It'll come to me like tomorrow morning. So um, I'll wait and I'll call you back. Oh, yeah. But yeah. I think being there and then I, I – I encourage people to have deputies who are their eyes and ears, not rats. This is not tattletales. This is extensions of a moral base. Um, finding those people that you and others work with on teams that are in tune with people, that you see that they're they're functional, and deputize them to be the, the heart and then the eyes and the ears of management. And if somebody comes in with a concern or even a positive, that then the boss can act um, in a way that, that shows that they've been listening. How, how much, how good will a, an employee feel when the boss comes and says, hey, I heard that you just had a, a third kid, or I heard that you're worried when you get, when you're um, off on of maternity leave that your place won't be here for you, or that you have to go get a whole new mouthful of teeth and you're ashamed about having to come in here. Is there anything we can do to make that easier? That's a good work environment. Mm. Um, and, then, and then having set ways in which you deal with all the individuals so favoritism is not seen as, and this is a big deal, that favoritism is not seen as a way people get ahead. Um, that hard work, consistency, um, and uh, modeling the company's values is, is appreciated and it doesn't matter whether you're best friends with the boss or best friends with the janitor. If you do your job, you're going to be recognized. And that's, to me, really, really critical. And that you don't punish people for being different. Um, in this day and age, you have to exalt that difference and use it. And I have three people that keep, four people, but three women that are my three legs of a stool. And they keep me, I'm a 1950s and 60s guy who's learning how to live in 2019. And they're my, they're my teachers. And they, and, and they are very important to me. And I think that's what an employer can do. Well, David, we appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. These are, I think, some great things that you brought up. And if you're listening to this podcast today and you have situations like this, now I think you know how to talk more intelligently to your HR professional. But I think the bottom line here is that if you treat your workers like humans, maybe there's a good chance that they will respond accordingly. So, David, Thank you again, and uh, please keep us posted uh, as to what you're doing, and maybe we'll have you come back again. I'm sure we all enjoy hearing a few more of your success stories. Well, 
could also give you some of the pitch. But thanks a lot, Mac, and I look forward to talking to you soon. Well, thanks for taking the time to listen to another episode of the Boss Builder Podcast. You know, if you're listening to these as you are commuting to and from work, I would highly recommend you listen again when you get home just so you can take some notes. We do our best to get you great information. And sometimes if you're like me, you got to write the stuff down. On another note, for your further development, if you work for an organization and you think that it would be valuable to partner with us, which I think is a good idea, we invite you to check us out online at thebossbuilders.com. We have three options, our signature driving results on-site workshop, which our trainers come out and deliver for you. We also have our very popular Boss Builder Academy, which is video driven. And we also offer the option of having your organization license our training materials so that your trainers can go ahead and deliver them on-site. If you're listening to our podcast on iTunes or on Stitcher, the other thing we'd appreciate is if you could just take a moment and leave us a brief, positive, of course, review. That would really help us out a great deal. And refer this podcast to anybody you know that you think could benefit from it. Until the next time we meet, get out there, boss up, boss on, and more importantly, make a commitment to being the boss at being a great boss. Goodbye.